This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. Today, we have my good friend and designer extraordinaire, Creighton Berman. You've probably seen his work around before. He's the guy who did that lamp made of an orange uh, extension cord, or uh, you've probably seen that pencil sharpener built into a mason jar that helps uh, quantify how creative you've been, Uh, or even the uh, countless sketch notes from design conferences and events. Craig is in the middle of a pretty formidable transition with his work. He's combining most of it under a new brand, uh, which he's calling Manual, as well as launching a new product called the Manual Coffee Maker, or MCM. If you haven't seen it before, it's this beautiful glass terrarium-like pour-over coffee maker that feels more like a kitchen appliance than a simple tool. Uh, The MCM is in the middle of its Kickstarter funding right now, which is scheduled to end this Friday, April 18th. As of this recording, it's not yet fully funded, but it's inching closer and closer. So I thought this would be the perfect time to talk to Craig about what this experience is like. What goes on in the head of a designer who puts their passion project out there for public approval? Stay tuned. Let's start by talking about just the fact that you've kind of rebranded all of your stuff into this new kind of heading of manual. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, so I've been uh, producing design work under my own name. So Creighton Berman Studio for a long time. Um, You know, what started out as sort of a side, kind of a side project while I had full time, I had a full time job at an agency. Uh, Then, you know, in the past couple of years has turned into, you know, I I went independent. So it's, it's, you know, Creighton Berman Studio is my entire thing. Uh, but there was always this, you know, it was always this kind of um, very eclectic amalgamation of stuff that I was doing. So, um, you know, I, I do everything from illustration to design strategy to the product design work. Um, you know, it's it's kind of uh, all over the place, I guess you could say, or or you could say it's uh, very diverse and cross disciplinary if you're more optimistic about it. But so that that's part of it. So part of it is okay. I'm, I have this pretty. Um, diverse message that comes across. And I don't know that everybody totally gets it when they come to my site to look at a lamp, you know, and then they see all these drawings and stuff. Right. So it seemed like a good opportunity to kind of break that off with the new brand. Um, but the other side of it was, you know, I was, I was interested in brands are interesting, right? So it's not when it's just your name, like, you know, you're kind of the, you're, you are the brand and, um, you know, the things you do reflect on you. Um, whereas with this new brand manual, you know, so manual's whole perspective is it's, it's, uh, it's it's a housewares brand or a ki- you know kitchenwares brand at the intersection of slow food and design, um, you know. And so I like to say it's it's uh, products for people who like to use their hands or aren't afraid to get their hands dirty. I guess. Um, so you know it's it's high it's you know intended to be designed objects you know that are that have a lot of beauty and you know have new interactions with food, uh, but you know it's but it's for you know it's for people who want to use things. They're very function driven. Um, you know I, I want people to actually make coffee every day on my coffee maker and you know, they don't mind just pinching their hands in the salt and et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, so having a new brand around that is, I think, interesting because now I can start to talk about things that I wouldn't probably talk about as a designer, you know, as a, as a, you know, as my name on the studio, like it'd be weird if I started geeking out about coffee and wrote blog posts about a coffee roaster 
and you know, and like started to you know think about the industry and talk about this and that and the other thing. It would just be kind of an odd message, I think, yeah. um, or at least a difficult message because I have so much else that I need to talk about. You know, workshops that I'm running or illustrations that are being published or whatever. It would just be a lot to put in a blog, for example. Yeah. So that's what's kind of exciting about having this brand is now I've got this like you know this separate voice that can kind of take on its own narrative, brand narrative, and yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know, it's, this isn't a revolutionary idea, right? This is why brands exist, you know, because it's, uh, you can start to build a, a story around it and, um, you know, get some momentum that way, which is, which is really fun. And, you know, and secondly, this, you know, and I guess lastly, it's scalable. So, um, you know, I'm super interested in ways of, you know, taking ideas and scaling them. And, um, you know, I just started to look at my own studio practice and, you know, being that my name's on the masthead, it kind of means that I need to be involved in, you know, everything that's going on. And, you know, it's kind of interesting to have a project that I can have other people contributing to. And, mm. you know, I, I think it'd be awesome to commission some designers to work on some stuff for the line. You know what I mean? So it's not just about creating Berman's designs. It's about, you know, it's a, about other people are designing things that fit the ethos. Yeah, it's you know? manual stuff. Right. It's it's a brand. It's 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 not me, you know. So for now, it's sort of this weird hybrid of it's basically me. And I rebranded, right. you know, a couple of my old projects to fit in there. Um, you know, the pinch salt and pepper set totally fit in there. Like that was sort of the ethos in the beginning. Uh, coffee maker obviously fits in there. And then I took another project, the sharpener jar, which was um, a conceptual piece, you know, a real product wrapped in a concept, uh, wrapped in a story, essentially, right. uh, that I launched on Kickstarter last year. And, um, you know, it's it's essentially a, sh- uh, a ball jar with a pencil sharpener in it. Um, and that that's kind of it. It's it's almost like a found object. But, you know, and, and celebrating the beauty of pencil shavings. And then the story that was wrapped around that was much higher level. It was uh, around this idea of, you know, everyone's been quantifying everything, you know, with the whole quantified self movement and, um, you know, measurement of every little detail of our lives. So it was sort of a little bit taking the piss on that idea and saying, you know, um, creativity is inherently unmeasurable, but here's a tool that'll help you measure it. And, you know, at the end of the day, you look at the jar of pencil shavings and that tells you your progress for the day creatively. Right. Um, and, you know, that, that I think that story is what resonated with folks on Kickstarter and that's what really launched the product. But, at the end of the day, it is a ball jar with pencil shavings in it. So it kind of has a kitchen aesthetic, whether it meant to or not from the beginning. So I kind of reframed it under manual, under the new brand as, um, you know, a pencil sharpener for the journaling chef, essentially. So um, just kind of brought it into the line. I don't, I don't know that long term it'll live in the line that way. I'm just kind of trying it out. But um, to be quite honest, it felt better with three products under a brand than two. So right. I thought it would be, yeah. I thought it would make sense at least for the initial launch of the brand to have it there. And yeah. we'll see over time if it stays there. It's easier to walk into a retailer with a line than it is with just a single thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Totally. And, you know, and, and that's, and I, and I definitely know that, but it's weird. It's like Kickstarter seems to, because I tend to launch all my things on Kickstarter, um, it tends to reward one-off ideas in some ways. Like if you, I, I Maybe there's an example that I can't think of, but I can't think of a lot of people that have launched lines per se on there. Uh, but yeah. if you have one strong idea and a couple of variations on that on that idea, like that tends to resonate with people. Yeah. Um, well, so it's, the, it's weird how those are counter to each other a little yeah, bit. Yeah, the you Studio know? Neat guys, I think, have kind of done similar to what you have been doing in that you've launched successive single serve projects that have become part of a a line of stuff for them. Right. And they're, I mean, they do, I mean, in some ways I see them as, <laughs> I don't know them personally, but you know, I've listened to the podcast with you and them and, uh, but I feel like we share a similar ethos of just, you know, it's the traditional kind of designer wanting to try everything kind of yeah. mindset. You know, they, you know, they went from doing, uh, you know, a, a stand for a phone to a stylus to uh, a basketball bracket to a cocktail kit. They're, I mean, they're just like, you know, they're just going where their muse takes them, which I think is awesome. Yeah. Um, 
but I think Kickstarter rewards that. I think you could tell a real clean story around an idea, whether they know, whether you know their work or not, you know what I mean? Like I, you know, you could come to that page and not know studio need at all, but that, that cocktail set was awesome. You know what I mean? And people, that seems to be the mindset on Kickstarter for people is, is this awesome? Yes, no, I'll pledge to it basically. Right. Um, you'd been, uh, I remember last year at ICFF, you'd, you'd, you showed the coffee maker and you'd been thinking about the brand switch then and you were just kind of weighing back and forth. What were the, the pros and cons that you kind of been, and, and when did you finally pull the trigger on, on saying, yep, I'm going to go with manual. Yeah. So yeah, no, you're right. Cause last year I, I was at Wanda design inside of a, we had a show called Chicago land there, which is all Chicago designers. Um, yeah. And I set up a little coffee booth there and showed the prototypes off of the coffee maker served, slung a lot of coffee that weekend. It was crazy. Um, yeah. but, uh, as a sidebar, actually, what was really, I don't know if you were going to talk about this later, but what was really awesome about that was, um, as opposed to all the other exhibitions I've ever been involved in, uh, this was the most rewarding because I was, I was talking to people all weekend. I'm just, I'm, you know, so many design shows I've been involved in, I, you know, you work so hard to get your piece done and you stick it in a gallery on a plinth and then you kind of just, you know, go to the reception and that's kind of it. You know, you yeah. don't really get a chance to talk and, you know, because I was there brewing the coffee and because it takes five minutes to do it, um, I had all these awesome conversations with people from, you know, stuff that's specifically about the product and, you know, what they liked about it or what, you know, what they saw that could be different all the way down to like, you know, I, I talked for five minutes with someone. It turns out they're a buyer for a major brand and and they happen to be a coffee geek, too. And I didn't, you know, it was just kind of cool to have those those dialogues. And it was authentic. You know, it wasn't like I was trying to pitch anything. I was just being a barista, basically. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. So I showed it at the show, and yeah, I was starting to think at that point about this separate brand. I think honestly, what started to push me over the edge, a couple things. I think so. You know, coffee's this uh, subculture in in and of itself. You know, there's a there's a pretty obsessive you know home kind of home coffee brewer community, and there's obviously the whole barista, roaster, importer um, subculture, and it's it, you know it's as strong of a subculture as 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 like the world of cooking and chefs, um, and so. Entering into that, I kind of knew that there was a, you know, I, I'm not, I don't come, I don't, I don't have any training as a barista. I don't have a background in coffee. So like, you know, I had to be smart about how I approached the space and didn't want to just barge in there with something and be like, this is the best coffee maker ever. Um, so, you know, I did a couple different things to kind of, you know, I partnered with a coffee shop to kind of start working on the design. Um, and, but the other big one that I think pushed me towards launching a new brand was um, I launched a Tumblr blog that was just about coffee. It was kind of a research blog for me, essentially. Um, it's called overextracted.tumblr.com. And, um, you know, I, I literally just kind of obsessed every time, every time I made coffee or did something that had to do with coffee, I would document it and kind of write my thoughts about it. Essentially, it's almost like uh, consumer research, but it was for myself. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, I, I guess it is consumer research, but it's sort of a, a mix of like journaling with research. Um, and so it was this thing I just kept doing and it was, it was actually a lot of fun and it, it actually started to get a bit of a following and there's people, there's people following it now that don't, I mean, I think they know at this point that I'm a designer and that I was doing it, you know, for reasons that are not just for the sake of blogging, but you know, it was interesting to see it transition like that. And I think that, that narrative, that like dialogue, I would start to get tweets from people asking me, you know, about questions about coffee and it just started, it started to be like its own thing. And I was like, well, that's interesting. So you know, and I think that's what kind of pushed me towards launching Manual as, as a brand because it's it's you know it's a chance to have a voice about something other than just a perspective on design. You know what I mean? Which obviously I want to still have that. I still want to be, I still want to be a designer. I still want to design things and and look at the world through that lens. But it's it's rewarding to look through other lenses and suddenly think, okay, I'm this guy that knows a lot about coffee. What can I do with that? Yeah, yeah. 
So the coffee maker itself, let's let's get into that because that's kind of that's I'm sure that's all on your mind right now. It's all can all uh, consuming. Hundred ten percent. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, when so it's up on Kickstarter right now. Describe kind of what it is, like or, yeah, and what so, it looks like because it's kind of it's it's a cool looking thing. Yeah. Thanks. So yeah, the launch is the the Kickstarter launch is is focused on an, uh, a product called the Manual Coffee Maker Number One. Uh, or MCM for short, um, and essentially it's it's uh, a manual coffee maker that celebrates the whole idea of pour over coffee, um, and so it does that through a couple different ways. It's it's this uh, glass and wood kind of sculptural piece um, that's intended to be sort of like um, uh, an appliance, you know, like a low tech appliance. Because this is for those of you that aren't aware, pour over coffee is the act of uh, making coffee by hand. So it's kind of stripping back all the machines, all the you know, all the stuff that we've been taught over the past, you know couple decades of coffee culture where, oh, no, I need to go to a cafe to get a good cup. And, uh, oh, I need a pod machine at home to make it easy for me. Kind of strips all that back and brings it back to coffee and hot water. Combine the two, let them do their thing, and and you have a great cup of coffee. So, yeah, so this product is kind of there's, – there's there's things out there that 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 do this already, of course. There's a product called the Chemex, which is actually a MoMA's collection. Um, and then, you know, there's a lot of other things you can get from, you know, the $2 plastic funnel at the – grocery store all the way up to crazy Japanese imports that are, you know, as a design, as a designer, just really fun to geek out about. Yeah. Uh, but I wanted mine to fall somewhere, uh, somewhere in a different space. So a lot of the stuff that's out there now feels very gadgety, um, you know, very much like a kitchen tool, which is really great. But, um, and, and like the Chemex feels to, to me very much like a pitcher. So it's something sort of a, to me, it's, it cues uh, like a, a Sunday morning at home kind of, you know, relaxing in the sunlight, you know, taking some really nice kinfolk photos of your coffee. <laughs> I wanted I wanted something that was probably a little more down the convenience to the convenience side in that it's an appliance and appliances are convenient in that they sit out on your counter. But obviously as a designer, I wanted to make it something beautiful if it's going to sit out on your counter. So it's, it's essentially, um, you know, it looks like a single piece of borosilica glass that kind of uh, comes up sort of cone-like and folds back in on itself. And that's where the coffee filter goes. Um, and then it's, it rests on top of a, a bamboo base that's um, intended to be treated so something like a, like a cutting board would be. Yeah. So, you know, you oil up a cutting board and over time it gets a patina from, you know, all the stuff you cut on it. Same idea here. The coffee will, you know, occasionally it'll drip on there and it'll stain it up. But that's, you know, that's the beauty is over time, like your product kind of takes on a patina, which is something I've always been interested in. Yeah. Um, and then essentially you're brewing down into, you can brew directly into your mug. Uh, you know, you're pouring the hot water by hand into your mug and that, you know, of course, the big advantage there is you can control all the factors of that coffee from the temperature of the water to the way you you pour it over the grinds to the grinds themselves. There's all this control you get. Um, and the metaphor I've been given to people on this is, is you know, everyone knows, you you know, if you're cooking a steak, you, you could throw that steak in the microwave and it would, you know, it would obviously cook it. But, you know, if you're serious about your steak, you're going to stick it on the grill, you're going to stick it in a cast iron pan or, or something like that and, you know, have the control you want to have over it to make it an amazing steak. Um, or, you know, apologies if you're vegetarian, maybe it's tofu or something, but, um, you know what I mean? So, and that's the way I kind of look at, you know, there's, yes, there's much more convenient ways to make a cup of coffee, whether it be brewing it in a pot or pods or, or going to Starbucks. But, you know, if you truly are serious about treating your coffee like a culinary item, um, this sort of manual technique is, is, has become a pretty accepted way to do that. Um, so yeah, that, I mean, so yeah, and then you can brew right into your mug, which is sort of, uh, the nod to convenience. That's, uh, the idea is sort of hatched from at my studio, actually, like, uh, you know, I wanted to just, you know, I'm working, I want to go get a good cup of coffee, and I want to make it somewhat fast. So I kind of rigged together this, this pour over stand, essentially, which, you know, stuck one of those funnels on top of a bucket. And, you know, that was the product, the first prototype. 
Um, so it really has its roots in sort of the workspace. You know, now I share, I'm in a shared in a kind of a co-working space and we have one of the manuals set up and it's, you know, somebody just hops up, they run over, they make themselves a cup of coffee in the, in that appliance essentially. And then they head back to what they're doing. So it's this, it's this nice, it feels a little less fussy than, than some of the other things that are out there. So, yeah. Yeah. How would you compare it to, or like the type of coffee that you would get from like, say one of those Bodum coffee presses, like how, how does it, how does it yeah. treat the coffee so, differently? Totally. And this is this is exactly why Manual is a brand now, because like I can totally get deep into coffee and start talking about uh, minutia that I don't know that Core 87 people even want to hear. But yeah, so so a French that's you know, a French press essentially is what those bodum those bodum devices are. And they essentially that's that's called a full immersion uh, coffee brewing technique. So essentially you're putting the hot water in with the coffee grounds and they sit there for four minutes fully immersed together um and then whereas pour over which is what i'm doing it's um you know you're, you're pouring the water through so the brew time is going to be a little faster or i mean you can control that brew time depending on what you're doing but um how, it gives you how a little do you bit control of, it well you can control it by the how much water you're putting in uh at a time so you know you could put little bits of water in multiple times through you know over a few minutes or you could pour it all in at once and, and let it drain through um, the, you know, the fineness of the coffee grind controls how fast it goes. You know, you imagine if it's really finely ground, then it's going to be a little bit slower passing through a filter than if it's coarsely ground. I mean, it's, it's it, that literally that when I say the word control before, I mean, that's really what it is. You can, you can kind of, I mean, I think that's what the whole, the whole design, and, and maybe I didn't mention this before, the whole design is sort of, uh, uh, centered in this idea of ritual. So, you know, coffee making is a ritual for, you know, millions, millions of people, billions around the world every day. Um, and it goes all the way from the complete kind of habitual, I just need some caffeine, get it to me quick, end of the spectrum, all the way over to this side, which is much closer to, you know, this this thoughtful ritual. You know, I spend every morning I'm, I'm making coffee and there's something really um, almost meditative and relaxing to me to kind of I have this process. You know, I can I, I go through it. It's slow. It's it's very experiential. There's a lot of aroma and, you know, sounds and textures and all kinds of great things that, you know, brewing this way gives you versus, you know, a machine just it's all trapped inside there. It's not really an experience. Um, so the whole thing is intended to be very experiential. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, that's. Um, sorry, we were talking about, I guess, the French press versus what I'm doing here. And so, you know, the difference here is just kind of what you get at the end. So this, this has a filter in it. So the cup you get out of it is going to be cleaner. Um, you know, you don't get the oils or the silt coming through. Um, I mean, oils, some people really like the oils and they are, they are a great thing to have. They generally contribute to like the body of the coffee. So that's kind of how it feels in your mouth. Um, and you know, sometimes that can get in the way a little bit of the flavor. So pour over kind of really focuses, it's very flavor forward. And, um, you know, and the, the, all this would be meaningless if it weren't for the fact that the coffee industry has been blowing up over the past 10 years, 10, 15 years and focused on these really, um, you know, they're treating coffee like a culinary item. So, you know, they're getting these single origin beans, which, you know, is a lot like talking about single origin whiskey, right? It's very much about, you know, the characteristics of that specific lot of whiskey uh, or barrel. Um, you know, it's the same with the coffees, you know, in that there's, you know, if you get a Guatemalan single origin from this one farm that's, you know, 2000 meters in the air, you're going to get a very different thing than a, you know, a Kenyan coffee. And, you know, people that are really into this know this, that there's all these different characteristics. And that's kind of the whole game here is like, you know, these people grow these amazing agricultural products around the world that, you know, are handpicked and hand harvested and shipped all the way to these first world countries. So these pour over techniques are really just trying to honor that and trying to bring bring out all the all the agriculture and, and taste out of, out of the bean. Yeah. Uh, th- so the, the, talk a little bit about designing, 
the coffee maker. You you'd start it off by like literally taking uh like one of those plastic they almost look like a coffee cup, but they're actually like a funnel sort of thing and right. kind of attaching it to a plastic bucket just and I guess that was just to test out the design. Yeah, I mean, it, so the, I have this one photo. I think it ran on Core the other day too, but it's uh yeah, it's a plastic funnel stuck on top of like a plastic painter's bucket, essentially. Or yeah, one of those little buckets you get from Home Depot. Um, that's that's not completely the truth. That prototype is was a little more Frankenstein than that. I really had a you know a proper ceramic brewer stuck on top of that bucket, um, and that that's kind of the origin of the prototypes. But yeah, you know, I mean, in in general, it, I did a bunch of different prototyping on this, and it was it's kind of a a little bit of a. a an exploration in, in today's sort of realities of rapid prototypes and things like that, that you're able to get, um, you know, so started out, you know, obviously with sketches and ideas like that very quickly moved to that hacked prototype of a, of a ceramic, you know, a ceramic coffee dripper on top of a bucket just to sort of, you know, start using it that way. Cause that, this whole design is very focused on interaction. You know I mean? There's obviously, I wanted the form to be beautiful and I wanted it to function and create a great cup of coffee. But, uh, I think the real differentiator is the fact that it's a totally different interaction for this kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, there's not really too many things in the market where you come up and stick your mug under something almost like an appliance and brew into it. So, because I'm so interested in interaction that way, um, you know, I, I, that's why that first Franken prototype was just kind of a, you know, a chance to live with it for a while yeah. and just, I just used it for months and just kind of got to know it that way. Right. Um, so yeah, eventually when I decided to, um, you know, turn it into an actual thing, that's when, um, uh, Shapeways, uh, you know, came into the picture and, you know, just the fact that they had this ceramic 3d printing was pretty instrumental for this project because, you know, I had plastic cones and things like that. And I had, you know, ceramic things that already existed, but you know, that's, if you're trying to test out a food idea, you really want it to be food safe and you really want it to be made out of a material that's, that's good with food, right, you know? Right. Um, so it was great to be able to make it in a material that, you know, is it's, it's close to glass, basically. It's not porous. It's, you know, all those kind of things. So, that was great. And it was cool to kind of be able to test it really quick like that. And I brought it to the local coffee shop and we brewed some coffee on it um, uh, and, you know, tested it out. And so that was cool to get that kind of proof of concept really quick and being able to make it, you know, it's food safe and all that. Um, and then from there, you know, the show, I guess that kind of led to the to ICFF last year and um, wanted to obviously get it made in the material I intended to to be made in. So um, and this was this is one of those weird, you know, moments where, you know, most designers, product designers have encountered this where it's like you have an idea and to find someone to prototype it for you is, is so hard. There's because yeah. people want to, they'll, they'll make 10,000 or something for you, but one, they're kind of like, uh, I don't know. Right. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> yeah. Talk about the, because the glass is, um, it's gorgeous. Uh, it's almost, it kind yeah. of gives it like this glass terrarium, glass coffee terrarium type feel. Right. Yeah. I love that analogy. I never really even thought of that until, until I started showing it. People were like, Oh, it's like a, it's like a terrarium. I'm like, Oh, that's kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, but so how do you, cause it's, it's a sort of a complex shape to do in glass. How, how, where, yes. where do you go to, to do this? And how did you figure out you could even achieve what you were trying to do? Well, I mean, it was totally trial and error cause I've, I've never done anything in glass before. So I kind of knew, I kind of generally knew there was, there were kind of two different types of glass that I was seeing, um, in the culinary world. There was, there's the typical soda lime glass, which is kind of what a ball jar or any kind of soda, soda bottles made out of. Um, and it's essentially a, you know, it's a, it's a cast glass, you know, and that's why there's seams on it and things like that. But you see these beautiful seamless, uh, you know, glass vessels sometimes, and they're, they're a little more coffee common in the coffee world. Um, you know, if you think of like a, like a Bodum French press that, that the glass part is made out of this kind of glass and it's called borosilicate glass. Yeah. Um, and, and essentially it's, it's, a uh, uh, it's Pyrex essentially, um, Pyrex doesn't necessarily use the same, 
uh, chemical makeup anymore. But the point being, it's this, it's this really high temperature resistance glass, really durable, really light. You're able to get a really thin wall off it. Um, and so it's this really, you know, for this project, because you're pouring boiling water over top of a, uh, a cone that's kind of hovering in the air, I, you know, I, it was obviously pretty important that strength, the strength be there for that. Um, and especially with that secondary cut, there's a cut on the front that allows you to put the, the vessel in there, whether it be a, your mug or the craft that it comes with. Um, and so, you know, obviously a secondary cut on glass can weaken glass. So it's this, you know, it's a sort of a tricky form, yeah. even though it's a really simple reductive form. Right. Um, so, yeah, so, so definitely started exploring that glass. Um, and you know, this is, this is the case where I found uh, a high end lab glass manufacturer. So someone that would, um, you know, make chemistry equipment essentially for high end labs and all they do is one-offs. And so it kind of, it was like this beautiful, you know, this beautiful moment of like, oh my God, I can get prototypes like so easily. Like they're just right there. And that's what these people do. Yeah, who's, can um, you, so that was, that are was, you willing to share who the, the company you used is? That might be a good resource for people. Yeah. You know, I can give you a link, um, that you can stick in your, uh, show notes cause I, I can't think of it offhand, but they're in Colorado. Okay. Um, and yeah, I'm sure they'd be thrilled to, to get more, more projects like that. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely give you the show notes, uh, link, but they, you know, so it was great to be able to get something like that, you know, so easily a one-off of glass, which to me, I've always thought of, you know, prior to this project, I always thought, Oh, glass, like, you know, it's a big deal. You got to set up these, these pouring molds and you know, it's right. But this is a little different borosilicate comes in tubes. It's, um, it's uh, and it's heat formed around molds, you know, in in the formed around uh, molds. Kind of, it's very, it's a very handmade process. It's not how, you know, how it's big not are the like tubes? It's like a extruded kind of thin tubes, and they heat it up and kind yeah, of blow exactly. it, sort of thing. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And I'm not, I'm by no means an expert in this space, so hopefully I'm not. Um, hopefully this is accurate. But yeah, as far as I know, they they come in these tubes um, of varying sizes and thicknesses, and and yeah, they just basically form them. And for my design, you know, it's essentially it's two tubes joined together. Um, so there, there is a joint at the top, but, um, you know, they're just these beautiful, beautiful joints I've gotten so far in the prototypes that are, you know, seamless essentially. Um, so yeah, so that's, it's this, it's this really interesting material and it's, you know, now I've got this, you know, pretty large kind of terrarium shape and it's, um, you know, it's thin walled glass, very thin and it's light and, you know, it's almost, uh, impossibly delicate. You know, you feel, you feel a little bit, uh, you feel this kind of respect for the form, although it can take a pretty good beating. You know, I threw it in the dishwasher just the other day to see what would happen. It was, you know, absolutely fine. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's, it's a great material. It's really nice stuff. Yeah. And then the, the base, what kind of, it's a, it's a wood base. What, what kind of, what is that? Yeah, so you know the, the 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 production version that I'm going forward with, um, you know, once the Kickstarter is funded, is is bamboo. So you know, I very much from the beginning, I kind of imagined this like treated like a cutting board, um, and you know, so whether that be, you know, a hardwood kind of cutting board or or whatever, uh, mostly it's because I'm, you know, manufacturing overseas and bamboo is is sort of a more typical, you know, it's more sustainable. I mean, first and foremost, but you know, to be honest, it's also more typical. It's easier to get when you're manufacturing in Asia. Yeah. Um, that you know, hardwoods are are not. So, um, you know, so that that's that's sort of why we made the transition. But actually, I'm, I'm pretty thrilled by it because up until now, I've been making all the prototypes are these turned discs that I was making out of you know essentially single pieces of uh, you know hardwoods, and they're beautiful. But you know when they get a little wet, they, there's the risk of warping because it's one piece of wood. Right. Uh, whereas, you know, a bamboo cutting board is made out of many strips of bamboo and that's just a stronger way to, to produce that. So, um, it's kind of, it's nice how sometimes, you know, your intentions shift, but they actually shift for the better. Right. Um, so is that, and, so know, is that almost gonna be like a butcher block of, uh, bamboo? Yeah. 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 Butcher block. Yeah. And then you, and yeah. then you kind of, uh, what do you put on like a lathe or you machine out just kind of the, the center part so you can set the glass into that? 
Exactly. Yeah. 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 Just just simply machined out and then, yeah, oiled up. And it's I want it to be a pretty simple piece. I mean, I want it to, like I said, feel very much like a cutting board, you know, not over designed, not I don't want to give it feet or anything like that. I want it to be a slab of wood, you know, sort of the whole thing. I want it to be very, you know, pure in its material choices. So, um, yeah. So glass and wood, you know, it's just like these iconic, you know, materials. Yeah. So is the design done or do you anticipate it? I mean, because like right now, I mean, obviously you're not producing it. And once you kind of get into production, things change when you realize, uh, oh, uh, replicating that on a, you know, when I'm making a thousand of these is is a lot different than just making one. Right. Well, yeah, I definitely know. I mean, as as any any product designer knows, things always uh, shift and move when you're yeah. going into production, and it's all about you know keeping that design intent. But um, you know the, the the you know so on one hand, it's been painful because I launched this product a year ago, and it's been a year's worth of development. Um, you know, with, with various, with multiple manufacturers and even just finding that, that manufacturer was, was a journey. And so, but the good news of that, the, the, you know, that was painful, but the good part about that is I've worked through a lot of prototypes with folks, you know, now I'm on my second or third manufacturer that I've been working with on it. Um, so, you know, I've learned what the challenges are. So I kind of know what, I know where there's going to be bumps and where, you know, um, you know, when I'm, when I'm headed overseas, you know, in, in a month, hopefully, uh, you know, I'll know what, what pieces we need to work on and what we need to, you know, focus on for the, you know, for the quality control. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but yeah, no, I mean, I'm, I'm fully aware that things, you know, things, the unexpected can happen and it might shift and part of it might shift, but I'm, I'm, I'm feeling pretty confident that, um, I know what parts would be the ones to keep an eye on and, and I feel confident that we can hit it. So, yeah. um, yeah, cause originally I was working with, for, for the prototypes I've been showing now, um, a glass manufacturer in the Czech Republic, which is, um, uh, you know, a, a, a part of the world that has a huge heritage in glass. So um, it makes sense. And they, they were they were really great to work with. It didn't work out in the end as far as pricing. But, um, you know, we worked through a lot of prototypes and we were able to kind of really figure out the difficulties of the of design or producing the piece. And, yeah. um, you know, I'm able to take that knowledge forward to the next, you know, manufacturer. And, um, you know, I know what I know what to look for, basically. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's interesting. This kind of glass, this borosilicate, as far as I know, um, and I, you know, I got this confirmed by folks at the houseware show when I, when I showed there uh, about a month ago. There's just not that many people working with this kind of glass in the world, and not that many people producing it. Yeah. Why um, is that? Way, I just, it's just not. A, you know, it's a little more expensive. It's, a, you know, it's a more expensive product. Yeah. And, is it, um, is it a lot more expensive or a little more? Because it's like, I, you know, you wonder about those things where, um, you know things get costed down and everyone just accepts that you're not going to use that type of material. And then you realize, Oh, it's actually not that bad if you really get into it and plan for that cost. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I don't think I have enough of a, a I don't think I've been working with the glass long enough to really have a point of view on that, but I do, I do get the sense that it's just not, um, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not something that's molded very often. I mean, it is, but it, I think it's just one of those things. It's just not as common. So mm. therefore it does cost more because it's just, there are not as many people working with it. So the demand is lower. And, um, so I, I think that's my gut sense of what it is, but I'm not actually entirely sure, but you know, even in my search, you know, cause at first I looked in America to see what I could find here. And it was, and it was, I contacted you know, over a dozen manufacturers and, um, even those that work with borosilicate glass, they were mostly working with it in sheet form, not in like three dimensional tubes. Um, and so it was just crazy how quickly it went from, you know, search around the U S to Czech Republic to China. Like there just, there weren't, there just didn't seem to be that many people yeah. working with it. How, how does it change if it, if it comes in sheets? Cause I'm like, it seems like there'd be a seam if a sheet has to kind of curl around. Well, and- you would, 
Well, no, you just wouldn't use sheets for this kind of application. I think okay. it's often, you know, this would be used for a flat, you know, kind of a dividing wall in an office or something like that. Maybe right. I, I'm not even entirely sure, okay. but um, yeah, it's just, it's just been interesting. It's just uh, one of those materials that um, it, it's just very specialized, you know, and it, and it makes it kind of interesting too. It makes it intriguing. Yeah. It's, um, I don't know, I've had a lot of fun learning about it so far. Yeah. So like in a year, you've become basically one of the leading experts in the world on <laughs> I would I wouldn't say that, but I definitely know I definitely feel like I, I could I could talk to someone for a while about it. So yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. That's kinda like the best part of kind of <laughs> coming up with this stuff and realizing you're doing something people don't usually do. Right. And it's fun to say that word, borosilicate. Yeah. It adds it adds it adds a lot of gravitas oh, to yeah. the whole. Like it's like when you know the type of glass it is. That's like when you go to a restaurant and they go, you know, it's not just a you know piece of cheese. Right. It's like this very specific type of Cheese, right, right, you know, it's right. like, oh, I, I like that ingredient. That, that makes it taste better. It does. Uh, yeah. This, um, so I skipped over this when we were talking about the brand a little bit, but the uh, the logo you have, do you want to talk about that? Is that going to go on the on the product? Yeah. Well, it's gonna. So the whole the whole brand is, um, you know, intended to be very, uh, you know, uh, kind of stripped stripped back. You know, very essentialist. Um, you know, the material choices I'll be making will be. Uh, you know, very elemental materials, glass, wood, uh, you know, kind of more raw treated metals, leathers, stuff like that. I'm really interested in like patina, you know, so I, I'm working on something now that involves leather that, you know, over time, you know, the leather picks up that patina. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just one of those ideas that, you know, I've been really interested in for a long time. I think a lot of designers are, but we don't always get the opportunity in a commercial sense to use that. But because I'm kind of walking this line between, you know, mainstream and, and, you know, small batch, I can kind of start to play with some of that. But the reason I bring all that up is, yeah, so the branding is going to be somewhat subdued as well. Um, you know, I don't want to make it too brand forward. Uh, so for example, on the coffee maker, I'm, um, going to be, uh, literally hopefully branding on the bottom of the wood. So underneath the wood base, there'll be a, uh, you know, wood burn brand. Um, the, the, the carafe that'll, you know, that you can use to brew coffee into, uh, will have a small logo on it. Um, I'll probably, I'm doing a set of mugs now that have a small logo on it. So I'm trying to keep it pretty understated, but no, I'm, I'm really thrilled about the logo. So, I mean, one of the other things I'm, I'm, you know, I mentioned this before, but I'm thrilled about having you know, an actual brand is I can start to commission work from other designers, um, you know, and, you know, in the future, hopefully that's product designers. But for now, you know, I was able to work with a, a friend and an, an artist whose work I really, really like, uh, Tim Lahan, who's out of, um, he's out of New York. I think he's in Queens is where his studio is, but he's a, he's an artist, illustrator, designer. And, um, I just, you know, he, his work is amazing. It's, it's, uh, I think it shares a lot of the same ethos of this brand of that, you know, and that it's, there's always an element of hand in the, in the work he does. Um, it's, it's usually very, very stripped back. It's very, um, you know, the, the, the concept is, is center and the execution is as clean as possible to represent that. So he does a lot of like editorial illustration for magazines and, um, you know, some branding, some branding work. And, um, you know, he, he has an art practice too, which I think is, is so, totally awesome. And he just kind of, riffs on these these very graphic themes but anyway so I, I love his work he's someone I, you know i'm i'm a big tumblr user i've been you know i'm kind of fanatical about that that platform and he's on there too so it's i feel these connection to to artists and designers on tumblr so um when it came time to to get this logo mark worked on and he was like the first person i thought of and yeah um you know that's and I, what i love about this mark so it's it's um it's got a lot of layers of concept in it, but you don't necessarily need to get that to, to get it. I mean, I think it's just got a visual aesthetic. That's, that's, that's kind of, yeah, it's, it's uh, unusual. I mean, like in a good way, it's, you know, I keep staring at it cause it seems, you know, and don't take this the wrong way, a little off, 
but exactly no that's exact and those are the words i used when we were talking because okay. you know obviously we'd gone through a bunch of iterations of logos and and identity marks and and they were great but i was like you know i really want something that's a little more off kilter you know like I, I like i like the stuff he does that just seems it just seems slightly off in a, in a good way though right and so yeah, totally that's that's how we push this. So I mean, if you really look at the sh look at the design of the of this mark, is there's these five lines in there, and they they if you look at the form, they take on the form of a hand. So you know the idea of manual being uh, you know okay, manual meaning handmade, um, but there's also a double meaning. You know, so with this brand manual, I'm also going to be um, there's also a publishing side of it. Uh, I want to publish these sort of um, you know essentially there's zines um, that'll be about food and interacting with food and. Um, you know, so there's a lot of there's a lot of magazines and publications about recipes and there's a lot of stuff kind of about like the culture of food. But I really want to focus on the interaction side of it. Yeah. Um, so whether it be really functional, like, you know, pro tips for, you know, using a knife or something to all the way to very experiential and what that, you know, what interacting with roasting coffee or something is like. Um, but I want these to be really informal. They're going to be zines. So, you know, again, hopefully I can work with some friends of mine that write about, you know, food and experience and are, you know, artists and designers. And I want to make this like a, a publication, but a casual one, an experimental one. So, you know, the logo also takes on a book form. If you look at it, it's sort of like a book that's kind of flipping through, you know, its pages. Right. Um, and then, you know, and then other people have looked at it and seen like they see uh, measurements on like, like a stove or something like it's almost like you're, you know, there's sort of this idea of slowness or time because yeah. because it's almost you know so it's 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 got a lot of like flexibility and i love that about the mark but yeah even if you don't engage with any of that and you just look at it it's just this it's this odd it's different than most brands you see and it's right. it's uh um, well, it feels a little the bit shape crafty. Is, yeah the shape yeah. is unusual to begin with but then like that one line that points towards the l instead of between the a and the l and right. you go well what's right. going on with but at, at the same time it's still beautiful it's not uh yeah it's it's, it's right. really interesting yeah, well, that, that and that's the thumb that that one that points to the L. Right. So it's yeah. I mean, you know, this whole thing is, um, you know, I'm, I'm I'm super happy with it. But the whole brand in general is is very organic at this point. You know, like I'm I'm still uh, I still run a, a consulting practice. You know, where I'm I'm working in design thinking and illustration. So it's this is you know essentially still at this point it's kind of a side project that I'm trying to make bigger. Um, and so you know the whole thing is I'm just kind of playing with stuff, seeing kind of what works. I mean, it's all iteration, right? It's like I'm treating yeah. it like a design project. Um, which is exciting. You know, I don't, I don't necessarily have to lock this thing in hundred percent right at the get go. Um, not that any brand probably does that, but like, you know, and, and plus you got to have a lot of money to be able to do that. Right. But, right. um, I don't know. It's exciting to me to know that I could like, you know, I worked with my, my friend, Michael Kaiser, who runs a, a, a beer blog called good beer hunting. Um, well to call it a beer blog is, is probably not even accurate, but, um, you know, this guy, he's a photographer and writer and he's kind of documenting the world of craft through the lens of beer. But anyway, he's a studio mate of mine and, um, you know, he's a great photographer. So I, you know, we worked together one weekend to shoot all my products, like as authentically as possible. Like we just like went in my kitchen, try to do very little staging, try to just, you know, my wife's a chef. She got a whole bunch of great ingredients. We just threw them out on the counter and I just started, you know, making coffee and cooking and, and, you know, using the salt set and writing stuff down in a cookbook with a pencil. We just use the products, you know what I mean? And we documented that. Yeah. And so that photography is what kind of drives the brand on the website. Um, you know, and, and it was just, it was just casual. It was just, let's try this out. Like let's, Let's try the opposite of like the photography that I usually end up doing, which is on a white background, very pure, you know, you know, kind of product design photos where you're just trying to be very concept forward. I was trying to be very lifestyle forward um, and but as unposed as possible, you know. Yeah. But anyway, yeah, so I guess the whole all that is to say, like, it's, you know, it's it's been fun kind of building a brand as a designer, you know, kind of taking it, iterating it, trying some things out. And I know that I'll just keep 
I'll just keep experimenting for a while, you know, until it, until obviously it doesn't make sense to do so, but hopefully it always makes sense to do so. Yeah. So this is up on Kickstarter right now. Uh, it is. And this is your third Kickstarter, the first two, or is this your third or fourth? This is my third that I've actually, that I've actually launched. I've, I've had cameos and videos like yours. <laughs> <laughs> you were, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I'm, but no, it's my third, it's my third one. Yeah. So it's, it's, um, it's been very different than the other two though. That's for sure. Yeah. So how did you prepare for this one differently? The first two were the pinch that salt, uh, and pepper shaker that you have. It's also up on the manual side. And the other one was the, um, uh, pencil sharpener that you were talking about before. Uh, how did you prepare for this one differently than, than those ones? Yeah. Well, it's been very different. I mean, each one has been very different. I mean, like the first one pinch was, yeah. It was 2010. It was like, you know, the early fall 2010. So Kickstarter was very, very young. Um, as far as I could tell, it's the first product launched on Kickstarter that way by a designer. You know, so there were a couple other design projects if you go back in the product design group, but they were mostly things that already existed and they were just trying to, you know, scale up. And this was like a new thing that I was like, I want to get this thing made. Um, so it was very early, right? It was prior to Scott Wilson. It was prior to Studio Neat, um, you know, prior to you. Like, it's just like I, no one knew anything then, you know, My, myself included. We all were just like, we just thought, hey, this is cool. Like, it's a place to to launch things. Like, let's do it. Yeah. Um. So, you know, my goal was low. I think it was a few thousand dollars. You know, I was making it in Seattle through a friend of a friend who's an artist, ceramics artist. Um. You know, it was casual. I just, I just honestly, I just wanted to get a hundred of them out there. I limited it. I made it limited to a hundred pieces. Um. You know, I thought, oh, limited edition. That'll make it, you know, desirable or something. And you know, and it did. It sold out. And you know, then it was. I think it was sold out for a week before the project ended. So, like, you know, that's just like that's unfathomable by today's Kickstarter standards, right? It's like if you don't have a runaway success, you know, um, know, everyone's aiming for that, like, you know, multi-billion-dollar, you know, project. Um, A lot of everyone is, but there's there is definitely a desire to do that uh, in the product design category. So that was very different, right? And it was just learning. Um, you know, obviously a few months later, like everything had changed and, you know, and, and Kickstarter was a whole new thing. So when I came back to it a few years ago, um, for the sharpener jar, I guess it was early last year. Um, I approached it really differently that, you know, this time, you know, obviously I knew that I wanted to keep it open and have as many people as possible get to it. Um, but I wanted to go beyond like just hawking a product. I, I kind of wanted to, you know, hack Kickstarter a little bit. So I did this whole kind of, it was called the campaign for the, uh, accurate measurement of creativity or something like that. It was, it was very much like I had this, like this sort of persona and I wrote things in a really weird, like, like scientific way. And, and like the whole thing was just sort of a chance to kind of have fun and use it as a storytelling platform. Um, and it happened to be selling a product, but, um, and I think that's, that's what made that one really take off. It, you know, got on the Kickstarter newsletter and this somewhat absurd product, like, you know, just blew up and did really well for itself. It ended up, you know, closing out at, 13 grand, which is not huge by some standards, but huge for, for a pretty odd idea. Um, and so that was fun. And honestly, it was, it was half PR for myself. You know, I'd gone independent at that point. Um, I was sort of, you know, it's beginning of the year It was a little slow. It was a good chance to kind of put myself out there as, as an illustrator as well. Cause obviously it's about drawing. Um, and I actually got work, you know, in the illustration and teaching space out of it. I ended up you know, the most notably I ended up going down to Disney Imagineering and doing a workshop on drawing there, like running a workshop. That is which weird. Is, you know, which is bizarre. And but that, you know, and I, I presented on Kickstarter just recently. Wait, 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 no, wait, wait, let's hold up. We got to well, no, ta- talk about that. <laughs> well, I'm going to get to that. Okay. So I'm saying I presented about Kickstarter with John Chemnitzer at the Houseware show. Yeah. And one of the big one of the big takeaways we were telling people is like, think about the side benefits, you know, like uh, in his case, like he designed a skateboard uh, uh, bench right. and he ended up meeting Tony Hawk. And like, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. Uh, 
And so for me, it was, I designed a pencil sharpener jar, had a crazy story wrapped around it. And somehow a few months later, I found myself in Orlando, Florida, uh, teaching storyboarding to the company that invented storyboarding. You know, <laughs> it was like, it was uh, surreal and absurd, just like the project was, yeah. but it was amazing. Well, so wait, you gotta, you gotta explain this. Cause this is, what, what how did that happen? How did that work? Because it's like, yeah, it's like, how are you going to teach Disney people how to draw or storyboard? Like, what did you bring to it? And what were they getting out of it? How, how does anything work, man? It's the internet. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah. uh, the internet, the best thing about the internet is the absurdity that you can connect to anyone. And so that's exactly what happened. Uh, yeah. somebody, somebody from, uh, Imagineering in Orlando, uh, saw the Kickstarter. I don't even think he pledged to it. Uh, I think he just wrote me. I think he had clicked through to my own website and saw, so, you know, the other side of what I do is a lot of, um, work in visual thinking. So it's using drawing to kind of, uh, think through ideas, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, basically what, what designers do, but doing it for all kinds of things other than design as well. So this guy saw that I had this background in innovation consulting and I taught classes in visual thinking and sketchnoting and uh, storyboarding for user experience. So, um, you know, the Imagineers aren't the ones drawing the cartoons, right? They're, they, they're not necessarily the ones that are, you know, Walt Disney pioneered storyboarding, but that was for storytelling. Right. The way I, the way I teach storyboarding, it's a little more around, or I mean, it's, it is around uh, storyboarding, you know, user experience. Um, you know, thinking through experiences through storyboarding and iterating that way and designing that way. So yeah, for them that, you know, he saw interest in that because, you know, they're thinking about the design of the theme parks and, um, you know, obviously that's hundred percent experience. And so that's, I think that's kind of how that came together. Um, but bringing, I mean, bringing it all back to Kickstarter, it, it's all because, you know, it's just good to look at it, not always as, as a way to just launch a product and try and make a ton of money. It's also, there's a lot of side benefits that come out of it. Right. So this third Kickstarter is, it's, uh, it's completely different from the other two. You know, I think the other two, uh, were a bit dilettante ish. Uh, and I mean that in the best sense of that word, I actually, I like that word. Uh, I think, yeah. <laughs> you know, being a, being a dilettante means you get to try a lot of different things. And right. so, you know, the our, pinch was me, me just doing something. Sorry. Go yeah, ahead. No, I was about to say our, our, uh, our buddy, Joey Nakayama, who I think you worked with, did you work with him yeah. at uh grab tank or were you gone already? No, nope. yeah, Joey was there. Yeah, but he he says, and this is always stuck in my head that um, designers are professionally naive, right. and I just dilettantes just right in the same kind of wheelhouse as that sort of mentality. Exactly, and I, it always it, yeah. It, it, yeah, it oftentimes gets a, gets a negative rap to be a dilettante, but yeah, same. Yeah, he, I know he says that, and Tony Ruth, uh, aka Lunch Breath, we always have that conversation yeah. too about L Lunch Breath on yeah. Core seventy seven. The the guy right. does all the cartoons with right. you. Right. Uh, you know, we always talk about that, that sort of dilettante is, is sort of a good thing to strive for because it means you get to try out everything. And, you know, I think the classically in industrial design, like that's that's sort of the the model you want to go. At. I mean, the Eames were dilettantes, right? I mean, they they had no right to be making videos, you know what I mean? Yeah. But they just did it. Yeah. And they, they you know, and, and so it's anyway. So I, I, I subscribe to that that notion. And so those 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 first two projects were essentially very, you know, very dilettante kind of side projects, ego projects, whatever you want to call it. Um, you know, the, the, the salt and pepper set grew over time and now I'm importing, you know, them at a thousand at a time. So it's, it's, it's grown into a business, but, uh, and actually believe it or not, the sharpener jar has a pretty large audience and, um, of folks that are interested in purchasing and wholesaling it. So, you know, these things are snowballing. So with this one, with this coffee maker Kickstarter, I definitely wanted to take it to the next level. You know, I wanted to launch this brand. Yep. Um, you know, the downside of dilettante, dilettante kind of work or acting like a dilettante means, you know, you're, you have a lot of balls in the air. And I definitely, as a designer, have a lot of balls in the air. You know, my independent studio is always balancing <laughs> a lot. And so, you know, I looked at all these 
the product design side of what I'm doing and it's my passion. I'm not going to, I didn't want to let it go, but I realized I couldn't keep just kind of tossing these little projects out there and trying to sustain them. It's just a lot of work. And, um, you know, so I, I wanted this one, I want to launch a brand. I wanted to launch the product, right. I want to do it in a large enough quantity that it, it, it doesn't just sort of just make it and just fund itself. And then, you know, then it's sort of a question mark about what happens next. Right. Um, so I set my goal really high, you know, I set it to hundred K. Yeah. I mean, well, actually it was 99,998, but you know, hundred K. Um, and, uh, did you do that? So it wasn't a hundred. So it wasn't, I mean, were you conscious about like making that a number that seemed less than a hundred? <laughs> I, I just did to be a smart ass. I just thought it was funny. So, <laughs> um, which, which is a driving decision maker in a lot of what I do, but, yeah. um, no, I took $2 off cause that's what Walmart does. Don't they? Or no, they're 88, right? Are they 98 or 88? I don't know. I'm, there's no Walmarts in either Chicago or Brooklyn, really. So, right, right. Well, anyway, I thought it was funny. So that's why I did yeah. it. But, but anyway, it's a large goal. Like, it's not funny. It's it's serious. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, did, and uh, what, now, when you, you had know. that number in mind, were were you you knew you needed that, or you just thought that you like how did how did you approach that number, even right. with having well, two dollars off? Right. No, I mean I'm being a smart ass about it, but the reality is I was I was really rigorous about it. Um, you know, being that I've run two Kickstarters and I've been involved in dozens of friends, you know, from, you know, just kind of chatting about it all the way to like being on an advisory board for one. Um, you know, it's, it's something that, you know, a lot of people on the other side is, oh man, Kickstarter is such a cash grab, but you know, as you know, and as you talk to other people on the show, it's not like it's, it truly is a way to kickstart your project, but there's a lot of work involved and, and there's a lot of costs you need to think about up front or you get sunk, you know? Right. Um, so I tell people when you look at that hundred K number that I have up there, you know, there's a lot of factors, you know, Kickstarter takes 5%, Amazon fees can be anywhere up to 5%. Shipping has to be built into your, to your price, you know, except for international. Now they allow you to break that out, but, um, you know, it has to be in your price. So, you know, a solid, you know, 25 to 30% of that could be shipping. Um, you know, and then, you know, there's just other, other hidden fees in there. I mean, obviously I'm, I have a minimum quantity order of about 2000 units. Um, uh, so, and then, and then there's all the other things I'm involving in here and bringing, you know, everybody's getting a bag of coffee, you know, there's this uh, zine that I'm publishing, um, set of mugs that I'm putting out there. So, you know, you add all this up and you realize, you know, I, I made this great spreadsheet. Um, well, my wife actually made it work really well, but uh, we were able to kind of like put in numbers and say, okay, let's say we set the price of this for each of the units. What happens? Yeah. Okay. Let's say we move the price here or let's say we make the quantity of units more and so, you know, I was able to like, you know, make a, you know, it was, it's nerdy to make an Excel model, but it's, it's a lot of fun once you get it right. Yeah. You know, it's, uh, no, I, I find the same thing as like, like, you know, as repulsed as designers are by numbers, like as soon as you get it into a chart, it's just, you feel so much more at ease because otherwise you're just sort of winging it. Oh yeah. You're totally winging it. And, and honestly, it's, it's like a prototype. I mean, yeah. the whole point of a physical prototype, right. is something you can play with and get a sense of. That's exactly what that, that's a business model prototype, you know, and like, and that's exactly what it was because I was going for a large quantity of units and a large amount of money. Um, and so, yeah, I just, I, we kind of fiddled with it until it, it made sense until it was like, okay, that's, that's a decent unit price. You know, I need to hit this many to make it. Um, there'll be extras, you know, like I want to make it so that, you know, I'm not just getting one run and then it's sort of like, that's it. Cause you know, I ran into that with the salt and pepper set at one point where I, you know, it just wasn't, it wasn't necessarily enough money to get the next run going. So it, it's, you know, I, I truly, I, I think no matter what level you're using Kickstarter at, you want to make sure, at least from a product design perspective that it, it produces sustainable results. Yeah. 
Um, unless you don't want that. I mean, I guess, right. you know, especially if you're launching like a theater production or a movie or I don't know, something else on Kickstarter, that might not be the point. It might be just about getting that one project off the ground. Um, but, you know, if you're trying to use it like a business, I think you got to take it like a business. And um, so I set the goal high. And, you know, hopefully the um, hopefully a week from now, I won't be listening to this podcast wincing. Uh, hopefully I'll be I'll be proud about that. Um, you know, I'm two thirds of the way there. Yeah. There's gonna be a big push. Big push to get to the end, but you know, yeah. Uh, well, let, let, that's what makes life. Thrilling. Yeah, I mean, let's talk a little bit about where the project is because this is going to go up on Monday, I think, and it's Friday right now when we're recording this. So there's seven days left today. There'll be let's do the math. It's like what five days on Monday? Five. Yeah, yeah. yeah it ends. I think it ends like in the evening on Friday, yeah, which so. is actually really smart. Like you don't want it to end on a on a weekend. I think the way you you staged it out that you want the project to end during the week, um, right. so people can actually look at it. Um, but you're kind of in that classic. So there's a couple of different ways Kickstarter products are funded. They're either, there's the rare edge case where they're just massively overfunded, like, you know, think Pebble or, you know, Scott Wilson's projects or, um, you know, where it's just like you blow past the goal within a couple hours and it just keeps going and you have like millions of dollars and, you know, um, so that's kind of like a rare sort of thing. Then there's the one where it gets, um, it gets funded within the first couple of days and then it just sort of uh, plateaus out throughout the rest of the project and maybe a little bit of bump at the end. And I think, right. I think that was like what your first two were. Yeah. And definitely. I think that, this, and that's, I think that's good, but that's also like more of a rare thing, less rare than the kind of the first example. But I think the way that most of these things get funded, which is what is happening right now is that you have a huge surge at the beginning. Uh, it kind of flattens out in the middle and then you kind of race to the end and get funded within the last day or so. Right. Well, God, I'm hoping that's what this model yeah. is. Yeah. Well, you know, because <laughs> the, there is a fourth model we won't talk about. But um. no, but, but, you know, I think Kickstarter has like shown some uh, some numbers. Like if you don't get funding up front where if you don't have that big push up front, you're basically cooked right then and there. Right. Um, so you've already had that. And, you know, I've seen several projects now where. They're very worthy projects. There's one I backed. It was this. Um, it was this magazine, The Great Discontent, where it, di- it didn't get funded until like the last hour, and they were asking for about a hundred thousand dollars as well. Wow. Um, but yeah, and they were maybe uh, I don't know twenty thirty thousand short going into the last week. Same as same oh, as you. That's, ins- that's inspiring because I actually think a lot of that publication is great. Like I read it online. So <laughs> yeah, and in some ways it actually makes me feel good to hear that someone with that much of a following um, and you know that great of a product, you know, they made. Yeah, it, so. yeah, and you know, I think everyone just sort of rallies around. You know, I mean, I think you've got enough of a community around you of people who are aware of you, and you know, uh, but there's probably you know, I'm sure you're probably, you know, pacing back and forth right now because it's like you know, it's this you know, just daunt. It's brutal. Yeah. It's just it's emotionally brutal. brutal, you know? Yep. Oh, totally. Um, so what, so what you're heading into the last week, what, what's your kind of strategy for how you're going to tackle it? Well, before I even talk about strategy, I, I just, yeah, I want to head back on that emotion thing. This is, I just, I've never experienced anything like this before. It's, um, you know, I definitely came into it with the past experience of, you know, pretty, pretty easy success. And this was, this has been a lot more work. It's, it's been, I mean, it's been like running a business, which I think is, you know, kind of the point. Right. <laughs> um, but, uh, you know, it's just, it's, it's, uh, 
very emotionally draining, not to mention, you know, physically, I'm just, you know, I'm awake at all hours of the day. And, um, you know, it's, I'm still trying to balance, you know, client work with this, but it's, you know, this is kind of all encompassing in some ways. Um, you know, I launched it at the houseware show. So it was already, you know, being at a trade show, it's already sort of a, uh, uh, an all encompassing thing that I, you know, I, I, you know, actually I was at South by Southwest the week before this launched, you know, I was doing a workshop there on, on visual thinking and sketch noting, yeah. came back, launched the Kickstarter, went to the house or went to the houseware show, launched the Kickstarter. So it's just been this like two months of just absolute insanity for me. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's been, you know, just because it's, it, I've had a couple good spikes, you know, like when I first launched it, it spiked up really quickly. Um, you know, just through my own network and, and through friends of friends and friends of friends of friends and just, you know, general following, which feels good. Um, and then I had a second big spike when, when Kickstarter featured it in their newsletter, which is always a, a great thing because you've got the, the Venn diagram of, of, of people that are interested in Kickstarter and understand how to use it, but also like they totally get into supporting things, you know what I mean? So it's, you've got the right audience there. This isn't like, you know, you're not trying to convince anyone. These are people who they subscribe to the newsletter cause they, they like Kickstarter as a thing. Right. Um, uh, and then, you know, and then it's just been sort of this slow growth since then. And I've gotten a lot of great press, you know, really good press. Uh, yeah, I mean, like Fast Co Design did a feature on it. I got a huge feature in the Tribune, the Chicago Tribune, which is actually in print today. Apparently, I got to go pick one up after this. Um, you know, uh, uh, I mean, a bunch of good press, a bunch of other ones too that aren't popping in my head immediately. But uh, you know, Epicurious wrote about it, which is you know obviously the you know massive food website. So it's been a lot, you know, and in the coffee press too, like sites that no one here would even probably have heard of, but mean a lot in the coffee world. Right. Um, so yeah, press has been good, but you know, and I know this from, from doing this for a while, but like press, pre, you never know what press means. You know what I mean? So, um, you know, sometimes it can mean a lot and sometimes it can kind of be subtle and not necessarily yeah. drive to a lot of sales. And, but, but, you know. but I think the important thing was that, you know, you made a really conscious effort up front to have that press lined up when the project launched. And I think the, the issue that some people run into is that they they think just by virtue of being on Kickstarter, it's going to get press. Right. Or they just, they right. just let it sit there, and it's like, no, you have to make sure that people know about it as soon as you launch. Like from the moment you right. launch, all of a sudden, you know, and if not even before. I mean, the fact that, yeah. that you had this at ICFF and you'd been showing it for about a year, I'm sure helped and is helping. Yeah, it's, it's funny. Well, I mean, just to refer to the first thought real quick. So, yeah, I mean, I think... I actually wish I had done it earlier. I wish I had contacted press even earlier because I know like a lot of people are doing these embargoes now where you can contact press yeah. and say, you can't drop this until this date, but you get the exclusive. Yeah, when did so uh, when did you start? Like right when the project launched or where? No, I mean, I definitely hit some people up ahead of time. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, have, I have a lot of friends that, you know, write in various places. So I hit some people up. Yeah. Uh, and, I didn't necessarily have it formally lined yeah, up. Yeah, and the nice I mean? thing about Kickstarter now is you can actually show people the project before it launches. Like you can give them the right. link and show them what right. you're working right. on and just say, Hey, this is where it's going to be. And this is what it is. Just. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Which is, which is huge. It's super helpful. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, to, to your second point though, um, uh, which was about, wait, I just lost my train of thought. <laughs> Can we edit that out? Um, no, 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 this is good. So the second point <laughs> was, um, it had been around for a while. Oh, right. So I, I'm still, jury's still out on how that affects, if that's a good thing or not necessarily a good thing. I'm, I'm you know, until this project ends, I probably won't know. But uh, the one thing I have run into is because the idea has been out there, um, it's a little more of a challenge for some blogs to want to write about it again. Mm. Um, you know, I, I won't, I'm not going to say names, but there was a very prominent tech blog that wrote about the project back when I launched the prototypes. And that was super helpful. I mean, I got so much attention for it. You know, so many people jumped on my mailing list. It was great. 
and and you know even going into the project I thought oh this is great that I have all this pre-press like people know about this but you know obviously the most important press is the most recent press you know just in general that's just kind of the way things are and uh you know and th there's been a little resistance from some of those folks that already wrote about it to write about it again um yeah. so which is understandable i mean at the end of the day they they run an editorial business and you know you can't write about the same things like that doesn't necessarily drive readership right um so you know that's something definitely i'm going to take forward into my next next project and anyone else i talk to advise them like yes you know people knowing about the project is really good but find new angles uh to get it out there again you know so i i do think it was a good i mean i think ultimately it was a good thing that i was very open about the development of this and kind of shared yeah. the process and got it out there but um you know it definitely took like for this one coffee publication um one that's like super well respected in like the barista world um you know, they they it was kind of t talking to, to silence at first when I launched a project, which was surprising because they wrote about the prototype with no prompting of me uh, before. Uh, but it wasn't until I so I decided to launch a pop up coffee shop out of my studio uh, last weekend. Yeah. Um, God, was that last weekend? It feels like months ago. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, and it was just, you know, partly it was a chance to kind of give people a demo and show show it off to, to you know, to backers or just, you know, regular people who want to check it out. Uh, but the other, the bigger driver probably was getting it out to industry people. You know, I felt like, you know, I had to get, like I said, coffee is this subculture. It's, um, you know, it, it's, it's you know, you got to respect that subculture when you design for a subculture. So I definitely wanted to get those folks out um, to check it out and, you know, get their, uh, you know, approval or at least just kind of get them looking at it and believing in it. Um, so my studio mate who runs uh, good beer hunting, you know, we put together this event and it was essentially it was a pop-up coffee shop. Uh, my studio actually has a storefront, like we face a major street and uh, North Avenue in Chicago, just west of Wicker Park. And so it's, it actually felt like, you know, you walk into a storefront, you walking into a coffee shop. It's, you know, normally it's a gallery, but we, you know, converted to this coffee shop and, you know, we got some beer, we got a coffee beer uh, brewed by some, a local uh, brewery. And, um, you know, I got some fancy donuts and, uh, you know, brewed a bunch of coffee. So it was, what was good about launching that event is it gave something for that coffee blog and other people to talk about, you know, it was something else. It got some local press, you know, uh, which smart. is harder, to, you know, cause I can say, Oh, it's this local event, you know? So yeah. the local, you know, blogs wrote about it, like Gaper's block and things like that. Yeah. Um, smart. Yeah. So it was kind of cool. So I'm just, I'm trying to find those angles. I think that's, something that I'm kind of learning on the fly. I mean, I want to do the coffee shop just because it's fun to do that kind of like pop-up events are fun. Uh, but I've learned that actually that, that gives newsworthy, it gives you something newsworthy to keep, you know, flapping about as opposed to just hawking your product for 30 days. Right. Um, right, right. You know, and the same thing I, you know, I just decided, uh, you know, you mentioned before, what's my strategy for, for closing out the project. You know, I've, I've got, you know, like I said, a third of funding to go. It's, it's not an insignificant amount of um, ground to cover in, in a week. Um, you know, it's not insurmountable, but it's, you know, not going to be like a slam dunk. So I decided, you know, why don't I sweeten the pot? Um, you know, we actually talked about this the other day and you advised me something different. So, uh, you know, maybe we just be candid and talk about this on the, yeah. on the podcast here, but I decided, you know, I, I had my, so the, um, agent that I'm working with, with the factory in China, I had them quote a set of custom glass mugs, uh, or not custom, but you know, mugs that I could put my, my logo on and kind of match the design of the piece. Um, early on, I got them to quote it, but I didn't necessarily put it in the Kickstarter at first, um, kind of held that back. And then yesterday, um, kind of made the big announcement that, um, essentially everybody, if this project succeeds, everybody that pledges gets a free set of mugs with the manual kind of identity on yeah. it. Um, you know, it's not, you know, it's not necessarily earth shattering. It's a set of mugs, but it's something kind of, kind of, especially if you've pledged to the, to get the device, it, it matches, it matches the brewer really nicely. It kind of completes this whole transparent yeah. kind of idea. It, is, it um, is nice to have clear, cause like you want to, like, it's so, tr it's such a transparent thing to begin with that 
to all of a sudden kind of go into like an opaque mug seems a little bit of like of a letdown for some reason. So to have it right. go into a clear. Opaque is so vulgar. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> uh, no but there is something I mean, I, I, you know, actually in doing this coffee blog, I actually did a post on that a while back. Just like and it was just a casual thing. But I had, you know, I, I was at my desk working and I looked over and there was like three translucent vessels full of coffee and like the light was shining through it. And it was this beautiful kind of bronze color. And I was just like, glass is the only material for mugs that matters. There's, you know, something ridiculous. <laughs> I really like that. Um, and that's kind of, you know, that, but that became sort of a design ethos for the whole thing, right? The whole thing is glass. You know, the mugs I use uh, are glass, the vessel that it brews into the craft is glass. So yeah. So this mug, these mugs kind of bring it home. They kind of produce a set, which is nice. Um, but yeah, so I mean, I kind of thought, you know, that could be a nice way to kind of, make a push at the end say, okay, you know, it's, it's, you know, in some cases that it might be called a, uh, a stretch, a stretch prize, I guess it's called, or what, what's it called Stre when people stretch do goal. Yeah. stretch goal, stretch to the end goal. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'm hoping that that, you know, inspires some people. And I, I almost made it a, an NPR style, like uh call to action too. It's like, right. you know, Hey guys, like you all, all my backers, you believe in this project. You're, you're with it, obviously, cause you backed it. You want it because you backed it. Um, but you know, to make it there, we, we've got to do a little more work and, you know, I hate, you know, in some sense, it feels weird to ask people who are backing you to do work for you, but Kickstarter is different. It's not a store. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not transactional. It's better when it's a community. Um, you know, just like I, I think it's open to them to kind of give me feedback about what I'm doing and, um, you know, they get to, you know, see, I'm going to be updating it from the factory and, you know, all the whole process of me try to be very, very transparent about it. You know, they get to be kind of there. So it's different than any other normal, you know, retail consumer kind of scenario. So I think it seemed to me like it seemed appropriate to flip that equation a little bit and say, you know, you guys are awesome. Thank you so much for supporting me. If we want this to succeed, I ask that all of you just recruit one person, you know, think of one person that, you know, that would appreciate brewing coffee this way. Um, and convince them to back the project and, and, you know, and if it succeeds, we all get this extra bonus and you obviously get the, the product that we're working towards. Um, you know, and obviously I'm not, I'm not going to sit back and relax and expect that this to, you know, hundred percent be all on my backers. You know, I'm still, still busting my ass and hustling, getting press and all the right things I should be doing. I'm doing a coffee conference this weekend. That's here in Chicago. You know, I'm going to be running another pop-up coffee shop there. Um, so, you know, it's definitely not a chance for me to just, you know, chill out for the next week, but it's, you know, it's, it's, it just seemed like an appropriate way to kind of get a push, you know, yeah. and, and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Yeah. So it's, uh, we've got, this will run on Monday. I think you've got five days to, uh, to back this project. It's, it's super beautiful. Um, you know, if you're in coffee at any way, it just seems like a no brainer to me to, um, you know, to, to, to back this because it just, you know, it looks great. And like of all the kind of manual, uh, coffee methods out there. I think you've kind of designed this in a way that you can be as involved or uninvolved with it as you want. Yeah, that's a that's a great point, actually. And I, I probably should have made this point an hour ago. But um, I definitely don't want this to be a heady, uh, you know, coffee snob only product. You know, I'm trying to reach back a bit. And, you know, I, I truly think brewing by the cup is the best way to make a cup of coffee. You know, it's it's the freshest, you know, uh, brewing a pot and letting it sit there is just not, you know, it's not going to be the freshest way to do it. So, yeah, I'm trying to really reach back and make this something that, you know, folks that are interested in these manual brew methods but don't necessarily do it. Yeah. Um, or, or maybe they use a French press and they just are interested in maybe something a little cleaner, uh, you know, a cleaner cup or something. So, it's yeah, I'm trying to really um, – you know, democratize it a little bit. Obviously, it's still, you know, it's still pour over coffee. It's still not a uh, the most convenient thing in the world. But, you know, the whole idea is, you know, 
the act of crafting something like that every day is is rewarding in its own way. So, yeah, really, really want people to consider it yeah. at all in coffee. You know, it just it's it'd be a great way to kind of. Yeah. If you feel like being a nerd about it and really get going into it, you can. But if you just feel like pouring hot water through coffee grounds and going having it go into your cup. Yeah, it can do and that. It, and it just looks great on the on your counter. Uh, yeah. Um, and the thing we didn't talk about is you have this like special version that's this um, Corian base. It almost kind of looks like a Carrara marble sort of look to it. That's on Kickstarter. Yeah, yeah. Um, and yeah, it, I'm pretty it looks excited great. about this. Well, thanks. Yeah. So, I mean, from the beginning, like, you know, because it's this glass piece that kind of has a home on top of a wood, you know, in this case, it's a cutting board. Uh, but I thought, you know, it'd be cool to play with different materials to have this thing sitting on. So, um, you know, actually it was at the houseware shows and sort of this lineup of, uh, basically startups where all, we all got these little booths, uh, 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 got the opportunity to kind of show at the houseware show for essentially for free at these little booths. And some of the guys down at the end, are these two architects from uh, Minneapolis um, and they uh, S2BH is the name of the firm. And they, they do these really interesting, they take Corian scrap and they do these really interesting like bent bowls and, and things like that. And uh, you know, they just were coming over and we were all just kind of commiserating and, and, and talking about, you know, talking shop or whatever. And the idea came up that, you know, a Corian base would be pretty interesting. And, um, you know, they said yeah. they'd be willing to try it out and they did. And it, and they sent me one and it looks awesome. It looks like this beautiful marble and glass kind of device. So, yeah. um, decided to do a little limited edition version of that. Yeah. The Corian one is, uh, is gorgeous. Yeah. And it's cool. It's a really unsung material. I think it's, uh, it's one of those where it's like you touch it, you go, this is, this is nice. <laughs> it's, I know. It's I know. Well, I was, feel. I was telling my wife like about it and she's like plastic like she you know it, it, she didn't get it and then when I got it she's like oh like it's it's not your typical plastic yeah, it's, it's, it's so it's, it's usually so used dense. for countertops and stuff like yeah, that for countertops and it, it it has like that dense coolness of marble but it's not obviously not as heavy yeah. as marble and um it's a cool material I, it's it's you know I don't I don't know if it would be cost effective or uh you know not even the aesthetic I'm necessarily going for for the mainstream product for this line but yeah. um as as a limited edition it just looks it looks pretty uh pretty awesome yeah it looks looks great uh so yeah back definitely go on uh kickstarter just go to kickstarter.com search manual uh manual coffee and even just searching manual i think you'll pull it up uh yeah or you can go to tiny tinyurl.com slash manual coffee yeah. that'll get you there yeah and you've got till uh friday the 18th to to back it uh it's definitely uh one of those projects you want to see come to life so uh if, if you want it to to do that, definitely uh, get in there soon. Um, I want to end with the coffee maker kind of brought it up at the top of my head, and I've been meaning to talk to you about this for a while, is there's kind of been this, this movement in design where it's, you know, and some people want to call it like a hipster aesthetic or a throwback design aesthetic. And it's especially kind of prevalent in like a home design, housewares, fashion, cocktail. I think the coffee stuff is very kind of in that realm where it's almost like we're cleaning our palate, uh, you know, in, in reaction to kind of like the glassy, translucent plastic that was really prevalent in like the 90s and early 2000s. Right. And it's almost like kind of we came to the end of the road of how cheap we could make things. You know, if we make them any cheaper, they basically just won't work. Right. And and so we're kind of we're going back to the point where we made these objects that were meant to last. And 
maybe they weren't even meant to last, but it was like the only materials available to us were these like high quality materials. And then like, right. over, like you know, the, the 20th century was developing all of these like really inexpensive materials. So a lot of people could experience a certain quality of life. But now we've kind of, we've come to these kind of crossroads where we're like, well, we can't make this stuff any cheaper because it's going to just be terrible and crappy. Uh, and so a lot of people, you know, like you'll see this like, you know, dudes behind uh you know if like you go to like the violet hour in chicago uh which is this, this phenomenal cocktail bar in in, mm -hmm. in wicker park and um you know there'll be guys behind the 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 bar with you know vests and maybe even handlebar mustaches not all of them but um and they're just doing these like really kind of hand done cocktail sort of things and I think it's like the worst thing you could say about our, our generation, I guess, is that we are rebelling by trying to make really nice things. Right. Right. You know? And yeah. And so like I wanted to I wanted to get your take on this, because not that I feel like your your work is, you know, the, the, the coffee maker and the pinch. I think that they're kind of timeless and I don't think that they kind of feel of an era, whereas a lot of the stuff um you know, almost feels like it's trying to be a throwback to that era. Right. Um, but you're using the same type of materials that I think were more common of a certain time and not of right. like the early 2000s. Right, right. This, I mean, this is one of my favorite topics, honestly, this, this kind of space of like, you know, I, I basically I have a 50 different ways I could go with this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I guess first and foremost, yeah, you're right. It, it's to me, it's like when someone talks about something being sort of hipsterish. um, I'm I'm conflicted with that word because me, I think me too. It's got it's got two meanings, and I think you know one is maybe vapid, following trends, uh, you know, of the moment, right? Uh, which you know isn't always. I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing either. I mean, you know, when something looks very '60s or '70s like that, it looks of the era it's from. So I think right. that's that's actually not a bad thing. Um, but the, you know, I think there's a plus side to hipster, which we've seen, especially in the past, like five to ten years, yeah, uh, maybe five. Um, you know, this interesting quality, and it's like. You know, it's yes, that cocktail bar is hearkening back to a different era, but it, it may be for aesthetic reasons, but it might also be for ideals that yeah. that you saw in America at the time. It's quality reasons. Uh, it's quality reasons. It's lifestyle reasons. You know, I was just at a talk last night, um, uh, uh, you know, two food writers, uh, Ruth Reichel and um, uh, the founder of uh, Chez Panisse in, in Berkeley, uh, Alice Waters, you know, like famous chef, famous of the slow food movement, started the slow food movement. Um and she was, and they were both talking about, um, you know, the way America ate prior to World War II uh, was much more like, the, you know, it wasn't like this big disparity of like junk food on one end and like super high end organic on the other. It was like there was these qualities of people interested in sitting with their family, sharing a meal, slowing down, you know, buying, you know, making making things by hand. It, it was just, a, you know, I'm not going to lie and say we were eating the best stuff in the world. We probably weren't, you know, and like as far as at least quality goes. But there were like values there that you don't necessarily see manifested in the same way today. So like when I when I see a throwback thing, it's easy to write that off. Be like, oh, that you know that bartender or that guy brewing coffee is wearing you know, you know wearing a vest and has a handlebar. Like, oh, he's so throwback, he's so hipster. But like, yeah. and that, and that may be the aesthetic version of it. But like, I think deeper down there's a value, like you said, for quality and it's quality of goods, but it's quality of experience. You know, it's the same reason why there's like you know 
farmers markets and and CSAs and Whole Foods and all these. There's this big interest. You know, obviously, I'm going back to food because that's where this new brand is. But there's this big interest in Americans, especially younger, you know, people that are in their 20s and 30s, in you know, getting real food and supporting real farmers and um, you know, and I, I think that doesn't necessarily have to be paired with a throwback aesthetic. You know what I mean? Like I, and that's sort of what manual is going after is like, I want my products to be modern, um, you know, not necessarily dogmatically. So like, I don't feel like I need to, you know, subscribe to, you know, certain aesthetics, you know, I, I really want the interaction to drive things, but still like, right. I want them, you know, there's a whole class of people now that aren't necessarily hippies, but, uh, are interested in more down to earth, uh, back to basics kind of ethos in other ways. You know what I mean? So yeah. I think that's, that's interesting to me. And, and, you know, you can label that as hipster, but I, I you know, I don't, I, I don't think it is. I think, yeah. you know, if, if the opposite of hipster is, is low quality, commercialized, big business, faceless stuff like that's, I mean, that doesn't interest me. I'd rather be a hipster, you know? Um, yeah. And I, and you know, I, I, I don't use it as a derogatory term. I'm using oh, no, it as yeah. like a, a really quick way to get people to understand what we're talking about, because right, I think that's right. kind of how it's been, uh, been labeled, but well, I mean, and, I what, and like I said, I don't even think it's a bad thing always. Like when someone says something's right. hipster, like that's saying it's cool. Like, I mean, like, you know, that's not a bad thing. Right. Um, it's just it's just funny that it has that dual layer to it, you know. Right. Right. Well, <laughs> and it, it's funny because like, you know, when I uh, when I go home to uh, Rochester, New York, sometimes I'm sure people home. That's like the epicenter of hipster culture. Right. <laughs> right. Exactly. Uh, I guess in some ways, you know, Ro Rochester's the new Brooklyn, right? Rochester's the new Brooklyn. But like people will go. <laughs> people will think that I'm a hipster because, you know, I live in Brooklyn and I'm sure people here, you know, like I live in Park Slope, Brooklyn. So right. like, that's like the uh, moms and dads pushing strollers, even though I don't have a, a kid, but I've got a dog, I guess. So same thing, uh, same thing, um, uh, you know, and people will think that I'm not a hipster. Like, and, and, and it's like amazing kind of like the, uh, the connotations, how that changes depending on who you're talking to and, you know, your right degree of that but i i think what's well, it's yeah go yeah, ahead i was just gonna say geography is it's so interesting like when you, especially being in a place like new york like you get the sense that you're not enough of anything because there's so much extreme yes uh, uh and, and and then when you step away from it to middle america you're like oh my god like no i'm so far to the left or wh whatever right. you're talking about right. it's like you, you just don't even realize it right um you know in the, in the internet is always the great equalizer of that you know even even watching this project going and seeing reactions from people and and you know th those that you know if you live in a big city this kind of coffee pr making coffee this way is not mind-blowing it's it's pretty typical uh but if you don't uh you know you either think it's too fussy or you're like oh this is what my grandma did like this is well this is how we made coffee before you know the 70s when everyone had to have a coffee plastic coffee maker on their counter you know and or the you know the 90s and 2000s when pods were the thing it's like you, you realize that some of these things are timeless you know and and they're not hipster they're just they're just a, a back they're looking back to an era where we treated things differently yeah um and i don't think that's throwback i think it's you know that's 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 the way humans interact with things as we you know yeah. we go down paths and we discover new ways of using them and we sometimes do things in weird ways because we forget you know the way we used to do things and then there's a reset and we go in new directions you know what i mean it's just right and i and i think that that reset is really just rediscovering uh, certain qualities that we left behind. And I think what will happen right. next, and I think I think the coffee maker is a great indicator of this, where it's like I could totally imagine seeing your coffee maker in an antique store, oh. and, and someone could have told me that that was from the 1800s, and it just, you know, had survived. And it was just this kind of beautiful, like, you know, like you were saying, like the, the wood is really patinaed, and it was just this, like, very clean, simple piece of glass. But it's also super functional. 
Um, and but the materials are of such high quality that, you know, that would be that would be. I would be thrilled if that happened. I think that's <laughs> to me that's like I get more inspiration from from the antique store. Uh, I don't necessarily buy a lot of antiques, but I love seeing the history. Yeah. Um, you know, if it's if you're something amazing and 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 you know transcends design at that point, it's 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 an object that's that's part of culture. And I think that's God. If if as a designer, if you can be there, that's that's the place to be. Yeah, and I, I really think that's where we're evolving to next. Like we had to have that palette cleanser, and that's where kind of like a lot of this aesthetic has come from. But I think it's going to evolve quickly back towards okay. Now that we've rediscovered these processes, these materials, this these qualities that we really appreciate, how do we bring this into the 21st century, and uh, and use them in ways that speak to uh, the time that we're living in? Right. Well, and I think the other cool thing is like even if you're doing things that harken back to a different era, the way you approach them now is different, and the tools yes. are, are modern. Yep. You know, even if I produce something that's a complete throwback, like I'm advertising it on the internet, I'm promoting the it on Tumblr, I'm kickstarting on you know on Kickstarter. It, it's amazing, like the you know, and it's almost trite to say it, but like the tools that are at our disposal are insane. Like the fact that I'm one guy and I'm running this company is is unfathomable i think even 20 years ago 30 years ago and and so i to me it's like the, obviously I, I want the design to have meaning and but it, it almost transcends the design at that point it's just like yep. you the way you're doing the way you're approaching these projects is so modern that that the content of the project can kind of do whatever it wants it can kind of be a little more playful and um it, you want to produce a a, a a streaming music player that looks like a walkman from the 80s man do it because you're the only reason that can exist is because of the internet you know what i mean and that's the most modern thing that there is you know at least in my viewpoint yeah yeah uh, we live in good times man yeah i mean times. like it's it's kind of like the best time ever to be an industrial designer i think i think so yeah i think of course we have to say that because otherwise it'd be really depressing it'd be super depressing but i mean i think it's kind of true right it's <laughs> no like, i agree i feel like you know like anything you could go in any direction uh you want you can get your own stuff made if you want you know i think the right. fact that kickstarter exists is like uh you know, and I think you and I have talked about this in the past, is that Kickstarter is probably the most important thing that happened to industrial design since the invention of CAD. You know, right, uh, right. And, I mean, that's like, you know, that's not to down, you know, I don't want to downplay that at all. It's huge. It's, it's No, it is It is huge. It's and it's unbelievable. It's, it's, I think what it's done is it's it's found a new form of industrial designer. Like I've you know I've I've always felt like I kind of play around the fringes of design. Like I I mean I'm very much a designer, but like I like I'm always interested in the cross cross section of design and something else. Yeah. You know whether it be you know cross section of design and illustration, which is kind of where I do that kind of work, or you know the intersection of design and and strategy or innovation work. You know when I worked in that kind of stuff, and and even here like this is entrepreneur this this ability to be a you know a micro entrepreneur essentially or or as big as you want or make it a full on you know, business, um, cross with design. That's, that was somewhat unfathomable. You know, people did it, but like the, the lift was a lot higher. It wasn't something you necessarily could just jump in and start doing and practicing, you know, which, which is essentially what Kickstarter allows you to do. If you're doing a small project, you're practicing for, you know, do I want to do this in a larger scale? You know, at least that's the way I ended up approaching it was, yeah. you know, this is, this, it's, yeah, it's an amazing time. I think you're right. I think it's, yeah, it's, it's, especially if you have this entrepreneurial edge or you have an, or not even if you don't even want to call it that, if you just have the desire to do things on your terms, yes, you, you can actually do that and, and, and produce them and get them out to people who also share your same point of view on the world. Um, and that's exciting. You know what I mean? You don't have to necessarily, cause that's part of why I think products, 
uh, you know, and started to dumb down over time. It's like when you design for the masses, that's kind of what you have to do. You know, if you want to get into a big box store, uh, traditionally, you need to make sure that you satisfy the most people with that product. And so, right. and that, that, it, that happens at a price level too. And so that drives a lot of decisions with right. the quality of the thing that you're making. And, and the diversity of what's there too. It's like, there's a buyer, there's only so much shelf space. They got to make decisions that yep. are in the interest of that business. So, you know, without that, a lot of smaller things just kind of languish. And now, you know, the great equalizer is the internet. And, um, again, it sounds trite to say it, but it's, it's, I can't understate it enough how for, if you're a maker of things like, you know, your audience of people that are interested, it's just, it's just right around the corner. And whether that be trying to sell to them or just getting your work in front of them, um, you know, it's, it, we, it, we take it for granted, like our generation essentially, but it's, it's huge. You know what I mean? Otherwise you just kind of languished in, uh, in your little world and you kind of created the work you wanted to create and hopefully you caught on with the right people, but you never really knew. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, thanks for um, thanks for coming on the show. Uh, I don't think yeah, anyone it's... knows this, but you, I, and our, our yeah, you, I, um, you, our, our buddy Co, and I were uh, <laughs> uh, like maybe a how how long ago was that? now? two thousand five, maybe. Yeah, we were we were playing around with the idea of like starting a podcast, call it and calling it After School, and then yeah, here we, just, we are, and then. Uh, it just sort of languished as an idea, and I, you know, now here we are. You, you had the tenacity to make it happen, so I think that's, I think that's rad. Well, I think we should dig up some of those old recordings, and 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 <laughs> maybe not, but um, you know, I remember one where we were sitting in 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 the Rock and Roll McDonald's in downtown Chicago, critiquing the furniture. <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, I forgot about that. Which somebody has it on a hard drive somewhere, and and if, yeah. if that sounds ridiculous to the listeners, like you got to understand, they have uh, pretty much a piece of every important furniture design of the 20th century inside this McDonald's. Um, <laughs> for, which some is reason, for some Who reason, for some reason, yeah. Well, they it was like a flagship McDonald's, and uh, it like. At some point in the mid 2000s, McDonald's tore down this like really big McDonald's in the middle of Chicago that was just sort of I, I had never been to the old one, but it had like all this like rock and roll type yeah. memorabilia or something like that. Right. And then they tore it down and built this like huge two story one that was like it was like a flagship McDonald's. But then they put right. like, you know, Barcelona chairs in it and like Rana Rad right. carbon fiber. Mark Newson five, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, crazy exactly. stuff. Uh, which was great for us that we could actually sit in it, but uh, I don't. Right. I don't think anyone else was appreciating it the, at no. the level that we were, especially not when they were like dumping shakes onto the leather of a Barcelona. I know. Chain. I love. I love the idea that that leather was conditioned by fry grease. You know, it's, it's, uh, <laughs> if Mies is just spinning over, you know. But yeah. All right, buddy. Cool. Well, this was fun. Yeah. I'm glad we got. I'm glad we got our little philosophical band at the end too. Hopefully, yeah. Hopefully, people made it that far. But um, <laughs> they did. I appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, definitely, uh, if you can check out the Kickstarter, folks. That's my. That's my little. That's my little pitch right there. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Thanks, Craig. Cool, man. Talk to you soon. Yeah. That's our show. I want to thank Craig for being our guest today. As of posting this episode on Wednesday the 16th of April, Craig's manual coffee maker has just passed the 90,000 mark, with a little over two days left. He's making good headway, but still has about 10,000 to go. If you love good design and you love a good cup of coffee, for just 80 bucks this is kind of a no-brainer. Head over to Kickstarter, search for manual coffee maker, and back Craig now. I've seen it in person, it's gorgeous. 
and it'll look great on your kitchen or office counter. Let's get this done, people. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. And when you're there, if you like what you're hearing, give us a nice review so other people can find us as well. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all of the stuff you heard us talking about with Craig. You can follow me and the After School podcast on Twitter at After School, and you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon. <laughs>